talking about uh, conflicted faith. And just think about that word conflicted. When I say conflict, what do you think about? For some of us, you think about, you watch the news, maybe like me, you're like, watching, watching what's going on in the news, and you see the wars that are taking place, the Middle East, and all the stuff's going on over there, and conflict involves missiles, and people getting their heads chopped off, and being burned alive, like terrible stuff for conflict. Maybe um, you think more recreational, and you think about sports that you watch, or maybe you watch UFC fighting, and so they have conflict, right? They're doing like bulldog suplexes, and DDTs, and running people's faces across chains, and cages, and all that kind of business, and that's, that is conflict. Some of you may be living in conflict with a boss. Maybe with a spouse, I know that happens. Some homes, you're at each other's throat. That's conflict. But conflict's a lot more than all that. Actual physical confrontation that takes place. You have conflict anytime you have a tension. Anytime you have two things that are seemingly both true, that are in conflict with one another, there's a tension there. I was riding in the car the other day with my daughter, nine-year-old little girl. We're just riding in the car, totally quiet. Pull up at the exit. We live off Leesville Road, off of Leesville and 540, and there's a McDonald's at Leesville and 540. I don't know if you've been over that way or not. And as we're pulling off the exit, my daughter says, Dad, in kind of a disgusted tone, Dad, there's an American flag next to that McDonald's. It's America. Like, I didn't know what to say. Mm, Yeah? I don't remember exactly what I said back to her. And then she said, well, isn't that disrespectful? So she's being patriotic, right? Isn't it disrespectful to put the American flag next to such nasty food? To which I asked her, I said, I don't know if she listened to the messages or what. I said, how do you, why, why do you say that's nasty food? And she said, well, it's bad for you, so it's not smart to eat it. And I just didn't know what to say. So I kind of paused. We're just driving, making the next turn. A couple seconds later, she says something that, that I thought was interesting. She thinks Pastor Jad's really cool. See, my daughter, she's nine years old. She really likes science and she really likes music. Well, Pastor Jad uh, has got a PhD in science and he also really likes music. He's our worship leader this morning. And uh, she thinks he's, like, just super cool because he does these things. And she says, Pastor Jed likes McDonald's, and he's really smart. (laughs) These were conflicting truths in her head. I said to her, I said, Pastor Jed is really smart, and Pastor Jed really likes McDonald's. They don't necessarily go together, but both of those things are true. And so for a nine-year-old, now she's living in conflict. How can this reality be this guy that I think is so smart, and he makes this decision over here? Like, how is this even possible? And many things in our lives are in conflict, aren't they? Specifically, I talk to you as followers of Jesus Christ. So I know not everyone here is a follower of Jesus. I know different people come to church for different reasons, but I want to talk specifically to those of you who are followers of Jesus. And so we claim to live by faith, and we claim that we believe the stuff that's in in the Bible. But think about some of the things that are in the Bible that are in conflict with the way that we live. If anyone wants to be exalted, humble yourself. But if you humble yourself, then you'll be exalted. Well, that doesn't seem to be how most of us would live. Or if you want to save your life, then lose your life. Well, wait a minute. If I lose my life, how in the world am I saving my life? Or when you grow in maturity in Christ, what you end up finding out happens is oftentimes the stuff that you spend a lot of your time on, building up as accomplishments, achievements, things that you wanted, you consider them a loss, the surpassing greatness of wanting to know Christ Jesus as Lord. Even if that means suffering, and even if that means difficult days, so somehow, because you have to have death before you have resurrection, somehow obtain to the power of the resurrection. And, and then you think of simple truths in the scriptures even. That forgiveness is a path to freedom. <laughs> that doesn't seem true if we really believe that if I forgive, I'm letting somebody get away with something. Or what about that getting is, is worse than giving? That giving would actually be better than getting something. Now that's contrary to if you believe that you're going to be finding satisfaction in things here on this earth and then giving the things away, that doesn't make sense. If there's a conflict there, there's probably no greater conflict than this. We desire to be people of faith for followers of Jesus Christ. 
but it's the very things in our own lives and in our own hearts that fight against us living by faith. And it's probably never more clear than when our circumstances and our theology don't seem to line up. When dark days come, when difficult questions happen, when God, if you're good, then why this? And if you're a good God, why do bad things happen? If you're loving, then how come these situations? And that's where Habakkuk was at. And Habakkuk was living in a conflicted faith. If you have your Bibles, we're in Habakkuk chapter 1, picking up in verse 12 today. We did the first 11 verses last week. He brought a copy of the scripture. Please join me in verse 12 in just a moment. But just as a review, what happened last week was the book starts off right away. This godly man, he's God's prophet. And he's asking God some tough questions. How long, O Lord? Will you listen to me cry out and and, and you don't respond? And I call to you and, and, and you don't show up. And you tolerate wrong. And you may remember, I carried some weights around up here last week and talking about carrying our burdens and that we can bring our biggest burdens to God. Well, that's what Habakkuk was doing. He was taking his biggest burdens to God. And then God responds to him in verse 5. In verse 5, it's on the screen. It says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe. And so Habakkuk brings his burdens to God and says, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. Where are you? Why is bad stuff happening? And then God says, I'm going to do something. Even if I told you about it, you wouldn't believe it. Which sounds like a great verse. Until you read verses 6 through 11, which are God saying, I'm bringing the smackdown on Israel because of their disobedience. I'm going to bring discipline and I'm going to use the Babylonians. Then you know what Habakkuk says in verse 12? I don't believe it. God said, you won't even believe it if I told you. See, I'm God and, I, and I'm doing things. You don't need to tell me how to be God. I know how to be God. And I'm going to do stuff. And even if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't like the answer. And so what happens in verses 12 through 17 is Habakkuk doesn't like the answer. And so he started off the book when his first complaints saying that you don't show up and you don't listen and you're not paying attention and you let wrong things happen. And then God says, no, I'm at work. You don't see it. And even if I showed it to you, you wouldn't believe it was me that was at work. And then Habakkuk says in verses 12 through 17, I know these things to be true about you, but my experiences aren't lining up with my theology. And look at it with me. Verses 12 and 13, he talks about his theology. Oh Lord, you are, not from, are you not from everlasting? You are the everlasting God. And he starts to say things that are true about God, his theology. My God, so you're personal, my holy one, you're holy We will not die. Now, some of them are going to die. When Babylon comes and brings judgment, some of the Israelites are going to get killed. But he's saying we're not going to be destroyed as a people because you're a faithful God and you made a covenant. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. That God's going to bless the world through the line of Israel. And he's going to bring the Messiah, which is Jesus Christ. And so because you're faithful, we're not going to all die. Oh, Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment. So it's not destruction, it's judgment. Oh, rock. This means you're steady. You're reliable, you're dependable, you're never changing, you are a shield of protection. You've ordained them to punish. And so it's like he's processing this, he's getting it now. Okay, they're going to come punish us, they're going to discipline us. And then he says this, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, you cannot tolerate wrong. So he knows these things to be true, that God is holy, he can't even look at evil. And then he says this, but then why do you tolerate the treacherous? And why are you using the unrighteous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And in verses 14 through 17, he uses a, a metaphor here, a picture of fishermen and fish. And, and I'm just going to read it, and then I'll explain it real, real in a summary fashion. You've made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked fool pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. 
not to God, and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury. That's what provides his wealth. Enjoys the choicest food. Is to keep on emptying his net and destroying nations without mercy? And so he says, this is what's happening. The fish are the Israelites. The fishermen are the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come in, and they're stronger than the Israelites. The Israelites are helpless. There's nothing they can do about it. And what, uh, what Habakkuk is saying here is, how are you using these people? And you're going to, they're more wicked than we are. And you're going to use them to destroy us like a fisherman does with a fish. And these people, they worship, the ne- they worship their job. They don't even worship you for providing. They, provide, they worship the means of their wealth, not even the one who provided the wealth. How are you using these wicked people? And then chapter 2, verse 1 could be a sermon all by itself. Look at what he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, Habakkuk. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Here's what Habakkuk's saying. I've expressed my complaint. Now I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on God. I don't understand. First of all, it doesn't seem like you're paying attention. Then when I realize you're paying attention, I realize what you are doing. That doesn't make sense to me either. That doesn't seem consistent with your character. And so my theology, my experiences don't line up. And I don't know what to do, but I've told you what I have to say. And rather than rushing out and trying to fix it, like many of us would do, before we're even done praying, if we even go to pray, before we're even done praying, that we'd rush out and try to fix stuff. He's saying, I'm going to just wait. I'm going to wait on the Lord. He says that he'll renew our strength. Those who wait upon him, he'll renew our strength. We'll mount up like on wings like eagles. Be still and know that he is God. We don't want to hear a message on waiting. And that's not what this message is about today. But you see it here. That, that is a lesson in this message. Habakkuk says, I'll wait. In fact, if you have the King James Bible, and some of you might, if you look in there, though, there's a scholar's debate about how to translate this. Rather than how Habakkuk will respond after God responds to his complaint, what many people believe, the way to accurately translate verse 1 is, I'm going to wait to be rebuked. And what Habakkuk is saying is, I've complained to the almighty God, the rock, the everlasting, the holy one, and I, I'm, I know this is probably going to go poorly for me. I know that God might go Job on me here in a second. Have you read the book of Job? You know what happens with Job when he starts complaining to God? God ends up stepping up and saying, uh, who is man that darkens my counsel? Where were you when I put the stars in place? Where were you when I told the ocean to stop right here? Where were you when I put the clouds in place? Do you know what it's like to take Leviathan home as a pet? Oh, you don't. Then be quiet. And Habakkuk knows that might be the response. He says, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to wait. And God gives a revelation. And that's what verse 2 is. Look at verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation. I'm revealing myself. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. I want more people than just you to know this, Habakkuk. I want more than just the Israelites to know this. I want us to know this. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. God keeps his promises. Though it linger, wait for it. Will certainly come, will not delay. And verse 4, here's the revelation. See, he is puffed up. Maybe talking about the king of Babylon. Maybe just talking about proud people. And he's contrasting righteous people with proud people through the rest of this chapter. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. There's the answer to your question, Habakkuk. You want to know what to do? When when theology doesn't seem to line up with your experiences, you want to know what to do? When it seems like you're a good God, but bad things are happening, you want to know what to do? When it seems like you're loving, this doesn't feel very loving? Faith. 
the righteous will live by faith. That's the central truth of the book of Habakkuk. I just shared with you last week that if you count all the words in the, in the Hebrew, in Habakkuk, the middle, the center of the book is this phrase, but the righteous will live by faith. Some of the scribes, when they would write this on manuscripts, would write these letters bigger than the rest of the letters in the book, so they'd point out, this would stick out, the righteous will live by faith. Faith is the answer. But here's the reality. Faith is a battle. The life of faith is a battle. And that's our big idea today. The life of faith is a battle. It always has been. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Eve's living in a perfect situation. She's in harmony with her husband. There's no sin, so there's no crying. There's no pain. There is no cancer. There's no miscarriages. There's no difficult stuff taking place. She's in perfect relationship with God. But then what happens is there's a temptation that comes along. Because sin gives promises. So she was living according to the promises of God, but then sin gives some promises too. Did you know that sin promises things? And so sin makes some promises. Eat of this fruit and you'll be like God. That's not true. You will know good from evil. You won't be like God. But there's a promise. But sin can never keep its promises. So she sees the fruit and it's good to eat. The lust of the flesh. It's already been appealed to you, the pride of life. You'll be like God. And then she takes it because there's a battle Am I going to believe the promises of God? Or am I going to believe the promises of sin? And at no time is that exposed more in our lives than when there's difficult days. When you do miscarry a baby. When the doctor does tell you you have cancer. When your spouse isn't the spouse you'd hoped they'd be. Or when you don't have a spouse and you'd thought at this point in your life you'd have a spouse. When things are happening at your work, the way that you want things to happen at your work. When, when difficult times are happening, when the dark days come... Then you ask yourself, now do I trust? Because it's easy to trust if everything just lines up and all the circumstances, but that never happens. It's never all okay. There's always simultaneously good stuff, bad stuff. The righteous, they live by their faith. But that faith, that's a battle. Because it's lived out in real life. And real life can be tough. And what we see here in this passage of verse 4, it's the central verse to the book of Habakkuk. It's key to understanding the book of Habakkuk. Like I told you, it's central here. It's not just central for the book of Habakkuk. It's central for the Old Testament. One uh, fourth century rabbi, Jewish scholar, said about this, this phrase here in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, this is central to the whole Old Testament because in this verse, it summarizes all 613 commandments that Moses gave. If you get this verse, chapter 2, verse 4, then all the other stuff falls into place. In fact, this isn't just central to the book of Habakkuk or central to the Old Testament. This verse is central to the whole Bible. That's why you get it quoted so many times in the New Testament. You get it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We won't turn to all these, but you can look them up on your own if you want. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. And in Hebrews, Hebrews is the book of faith. Pastor Jad read from it during the worship set. 29 times in the book of Hebrews, it says, by faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, we get this verse. This verse is central to the whole Bible. James Montgomery Boyce, New Testament scholar, says this. It could be called the great text of the Bible. Hebrews 2.4. To understand it is to understand the Christian gospel and the Christian life. When you understand what it is to live by faith, it changes everything. It did for Martin Luther. If you've never heard that name, Martin Luther is a guy who was a leader in the Reformation. Reforming the church from uh, the Catholic church and the corruption that was taking place at his day and the Catholic church to what is the, now known as the Protestant church, the protesters church. Because what happened was he's this frustrated monk who keeps trying to be righteous and do all the right things. 
And then he's reading in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 where Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted. And it totally changes his world. He says this, Martin Luther, talking about reading Romans 1.17. He says, here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. There a totally new face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Because it was at that moment that he realized, so wait, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's not talking about being a good boy, being a good girl, thinking good thoughts to try and get rid of the bad thoughts that you'd thought before, think doing good deeds to try and undo the bad deeds that you'd done before. That righteousness is actually a gift from God, and it comes through the channel of faith. That faith is the means by which, the channel through which God blesses us. And so the Ephesians says it like this, that we are saved by grace. Grace is something you don't deserve. You're given something you don't deserve through faith. Faith is the means by which you are saved. Grace is you're being offered something you don't deserve because what we all deserve, separation from God because we all sin. Like a pile of dirty rags, the best we could possibly do, the wages of our sin is death, is separation from God. We can't possibly please God. No matter how hard we try, the best we can do is like a pile of dirty rags. And so we're toast. You can't undo your bad stuff. But we receive salvation, which is the righteousness of Christ, through faith. When we decide to shift all of our weight, of all of our trust, upon the cross of Jesus Christ from whatever it was in, ourselves, our good works, some hope that it all just works out someday, being religious, whatever that stuff is that's ultimately going to lead us to hell, we take and shift the trust from that to the cross of Christ, and then we are declared righteous. Not because we're good, but because by faith that we've been given righteousness through that channel of faith. It's through that channel of faith that God blesses us. And so what is faith? What does it look like to have faith? If I ask you, are you a person of faith? What, what some of us will say is, I had this experience where I trusted Jesus. That was my moment of faith. And you can maybe remember your moment of faith. It makes me think of uh, when I was in college. I remember I got invited to go skydiving by a classmate, and he told me how it would be free if I came with him and this whole deal, what would take place. And um, I was down with pretty much anything that was free uh, when I was in college, even if it meant risking my life. And so he invited me to go skydiving. We planned it out that week, and uh, we were going to go. We went to college in Ohio, and uh, he took me to this place. He had worked out all the logistics. I just kind of got in his car, and we showed up, and we drive out there. This doesn't look like a real business, let me tell you that. We pull up in this like cornfield in the middle of Ohio. There's some junky cars and some motorcycles parked out front, and there's like kind of a steel barn that's out here. And so it, it kind of looks like if they have a plane, it's probably a crop duster, and they're just charging college kids to jump out of it. Like whatever's going on here, it doesn't seem like a legit business. But we walk in, we got our polo shirts on and some khakis, and we're these yuppie college kids, right? We come strolling in there, and they're looking at us like, yep, this is how we make money. Because of you guys, you're idiots. And so they take us, they put us in a room, we watch a 10-minute video that basically tells us you could die and we're not responsible. And then we come out of there and they give us about a 10-minute instruction about how to jump out of an airplane. I, I didn't think you needed training for that, but they did. About 10 minutes worth of training of how to jump out of an airplane. And then this guy comes walking up that I hadn't seen until this moment. He looks like he just woke up. Um, and he's packed my parachute. And he's going to be strapped to my back. I'm depending my entire life on this guy. Never met him before. I didn't ask him if he knew how to pack a parachute. I didn't ask him if he had ever done it before. Didn't ask if he was paying attention this time when he did it. Then this plane comes pulling up. The plane is not um, American Airlines or Southwest, okay? It's not, 
It's not any of that stuff. There's like an open door. We all climb in. I didn't ask the pilot if he had a license. I didn't ask him the last time this plane had a mechanical check. I didn't ask him about how much gas was in it. We just start flying, and we fly up, and we're going up and up, and I don't know how many feet we got to, but it was really high. And then the first person jumps out of the plane. I don't know if you've ever done this before or not. If you watch on TV or the movies, when people jump out of planes, it's like they float out. That's not what it was like. When the first person jumped out of the plane, it was, they were there, and then, whoosh, like, they're, they're like a little dot. They're, like, way off in the distance, and it's going, like, I don't, I don't know about this, like, at this moment. But then it gets my turn to jump out of the plane, so I jump out of the plane. I lived. Uh, end of story, just so you know. I'm standing here. Um, was that faith? No, it was stupid, you know. Yeah, it was, uh, it was probably stupid, and then, but there was a moment, there was faith, there was a moment of faith, at least. I, now, I haven't really thought about the guy who was strapped to my back and packed that parachute until this week since, since I was in college, uh, or the person that was flying the plane. In fact, if they were at church here today and they came up to me in the lobby afterwards and said, I was the guy strapped to your back, I'd be like, yeah, right. Like, I don't have any relationship with this person or anything about it, but I had a sincere moment of faith. I genuinely, at the, when I jumped out of the plane, I was banking my whole life on this guy that he knew what he was doing. That was genuine, sincere faith. Now, some of you, when you think about your conversion experience, that was, that's, you had a faith moment. And it could have been for lots of reasons. You could have been overwhelmed with your sin, and you realized you needed a Savior. And so you had a faith moment where you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You could have been in a situation where you just didn't want to go to hell. You could have been convinced by the guy that was up front talking, saying, I believe what he's saying, and, I want to, and you were sincere in your heart. Maybe you were at camp when you were a kid, and they kept you up for like three days straight, and you'd have done anything they said. But you meant it, and that moment... But notice the text in verse 4 isn't saying, have you had a faith moment? The righteous had a faith moment. They have a faith memory. They were sincere in their faith. Now, I had a faith moment skydiving. Some of you had faith moments. But it says that the righteous will live by, key words, live by faith. Because here's the deal. Genuine faith produces faithfulness. Genuine faith produces faithfulness. So it leads to a life of obedience. Genuine faith leads to works. You start with faith when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and then you continue in your spiritual journey walking by faith. The righteous receive life, the channel of blessing, through their faith and continual faith. Faith is not just a one-time thing. For those of you who are married, uh, you had a commitment, probably some type of ceremony that you did, I don't know, all kinds of different cultures here and whatnot, but in the American culture, you know, we have a marriage ceremony where the husband and the wife, they stand before each other, they make promises to God and commitments to one another, and you are going to trust each other, whether it's sickness and health, rich or poor, all, that, all those things that were going to be said. But if it stopped right there, what kind of relationship would you have? Think about any relationship with my kids. I don't want my kids to trust me once. Continue to trust. My friends, you don't oftentimes have a ceremony with your friends, but say you do. Say you have a ceremony. You don't just say, I trust you as my friend. No, you continue to trust as you live life. And that's what happens in a relationship with God, that we live by faith. We don't just have a moment of faith. We live by faith. But it's a battle. And what did it mean for the Israelites as they heard these words from Habakkuk? And they got to verse 4, and they saw the manuscript where the letters were bigger, and this is central, and this is key, and you've got to understand this. Here's what it meant for them. In these dark days, Babylonians are coming. 
There's going to be destruction. You're going to be in exile. And so you're going to be 600 miles. Those of you who don't get killed are going to be 600 miles from your home. The temple's going to be destroyed. And you're going to be there for 70 years under Babylonian oppression. Will you trust? Here's what it means for some of us. You might lose the baby. You may get cancer. Your marriage might not go the way you expected. You might not be married. Will you trust? What about when real life is happening? In dark days. Because theoretically, like when we're all sitting in church and everything's like we're talking about the scriptures, you've been singing songs. Yeah, I want to live by faith. But then when you, live real, when you hit real life, then will you trust? And it's a battle, isn't it? And so we see, I love how honest the scriptures are. You get the Mark chapter 9 is a story that I love. It's meant a lot to my family as we think about faith. And you look in Mark chapter 9, what happens? There's a dad there whose son's having convulsions. And they call it demon possession in Mark chapter 9. And he said the son's trying to destroy himself. He throws himself in the fire. He throws himself in the water. And they went to the disciples. The disciples couldn't help. This guy's probably been to all the traditional medicines, probably been to all the non-traditional medicines. He's tried everything he could. It seems that the boy is beyond just uh, baby, child time frame. And uh, he can't even talk. And then Jesus comes up and says, what are you guys arguing about? What's going on here? This is a big commotion. He explains what's happening with this child. And then the father comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can... Will you take pity on us and help us in some way? Do you know what Jesus responds with? If I can. If I can. Almost as if we don't realize who it is we're talking to, because here's one of the keys with faith. What's the object of your faith? We live in a time where there's a lot of people who say, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. They have faith in faith. There's nothing there. Faith for faith's sake. Atheists have faith. Faith that just everything exists and there is no creator. That takes a lot of faith. Everybody's got some faith. What is your faith in? Many people have faith in themselves, faith in their jobs, faith in, faith in lots of stuff. Jesus is saying, do you realize who you're talking to? You go back in Habakkuk chapter 1, do you know who he was talking to? He was talking to the rock. Talking to the everlasting God. His God, the Holy One. The one who created it all and controls it all. And then Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes. Amen. Then the guy says back, here's conflicted faith. I believe Help my unbelief. I want to believe, but I don't always believe. So I want to have faith, but there's like this battle in my faith. There's a fight in faith. And the fight takes place between the promises of God and the promises of sin. The promises of dependence upon God and the promises of self-sufficiency. The promises that God will satisfy and God will deliver are the promises that something else will satisfy and something else will deliver. And what we see in the rest of this passage, so the key is chapter 2, verse 4, but the righteous will live by faith. But what we see in the rest of this chapter is the contrast with the proud. Probably talking about the Babylonians and the way that it's structured through the rest of these verses, verses 6 through 20, are five woes. So you get five stanzas, three verses each. Whoa, 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 whoa. Five times. And the woes are prophetic language of judgment against sin. But behind each one of those sins is a lie that someone has to believe in order to perform those sins. And while many of us haven't done the actual sins that the Babylonians have done, many of us believe or at least are very vulnerable to the lies that lead to these sins. And so what I want to look at as we read through the rest of this chapter are the five lies that battle against our, sin, against our life of faith. And so we're supposed to live by faith. Well, what are the things that battle against the life of faith? Well, verse 5 gives us some context here, talking about the proud person again. 
Verse 5 says this, Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant, so we're talking about deception. He is arrogant and never at rest, so you're continually trying to accomplish something here because he's as greedy as the grave. And how greedy is the grave? Well, the grave is never quenched. And like death, is never satisfied or fulfilled. And that's a key word for each one of the lies we're going to talk about. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. In verse 6, we get the setup of the five woes. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? And so here's what's happening. God's about to sing a song, a mockery song of the Babylonians. So Habakkuk's pretty upset that God's going to use the Babylonians. God's saying, here's the, I'm, gonna, I'm about to sing a song, a taunt, talking trash to these sinners, essentially. And here's the underlying premise for everything we're going to read. You reap what you sow. And so they are self-sufficient, and so then they're going to be self-destructive. And, and the, he goes through and he hits each one. Each woe has a lie. The first lie is this. It's one that many people believe that our stuff will satisfy. If we believe that stuff will satisfy, it becomes impossible to live by faith. And that's the lie that's behind the sin that the Babylonians are performing. It says this, the first woe, woe to him. Verse 6, second part of verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. Why would anyone steal goods? Because they believe that stuff will satisfy. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes, for himself, makes himself wealthy by extortion. Why would anyone extort someone? Because you think that stuff is going to satisfy you. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? So he's saying what's going to happen here to the Babylonians. The very people that you're extorting money from are going to make you pay. Then you'll become their victim. You reap what you sow. Because they have plundered many nations. The people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. God's going to make sure justice takes place. And he's telling Habakkuk that. What kind of person will you be like, Habakkuk? Will you be like the righteous who live by faith? Or will you be like the person who thinks that stuff will satisfy? Lie number one. Stuff will satisfy. Many of us believe that. We may not say that we believe it. We don't want to acknowledge we believe it. Might not be as candid and open as the woman I read the email from last week who said, when I was lonely, I'd go shopping. But if we think stuff is going to satisfy us, money, possessions, some kind of amount of things, then we're, we are in conflict in our faith. It has to be a conflicted faith because you can't have two masters. You'll love one and serve one. You'll be devoted to one. You'll hate the other. This is why Jesus talks about this so much, that our stuff is so intimately tied to our spiritual lives. And we know... They can ruin our spiritual lives. You see it in Luke chapter 18. The guy who comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, keep all the commandments. That sounds simple, right? You know, just don't covet, don't commit adultery, don't steal. He goes, I've done that. Well, he's not, Jesus doesn't say, well, you're all set then. He knows there's a problem. So he says to the guy, all right, there's one thing I require of you. Go sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. Well, that's three things, Jesus. It's not three things. He could have said, just come follow me. But he knows the guy can't come follow him because he's trapped by his stuff. He says, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, then you'll be free to come follow me. There's your one thing. If you read Luke chapter 18, what you find out is the guy leaves sad. It cost him eternal life. He'd rather have his stuff than have eternal life. And we know that stuff can lead us down that path. We, about a month ago, we were in Luke chapter 12. We talked about the guy who was the rich farmer. And how he got to the place where he said, eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus says, you fool. You've made life all about this life, and you've lost perspective on eternity. That life is about more than these 80 years that you have here. And you're supposed to use the stuff that you have here that will make a difference for the 80 years. And what we want to be like is ultimately the guy in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, who's walking through a field, and he finds a treasure in the field, and then it says that he went and in his joy sold all of his possessions so he could buy the field. 
Point being this, that we would realize what we get in eternity so much better than here. We'd be willing to give up everything here for eternity. But if there's anything in your life that you would be willing to give up, you don't own that thing. It owns you. And you're conflicted in faith. And that can be kids. And that can be a house. And that can be a phone. And that can be, what is, what is our stuff? Your stuff will never satisfy. And if you think your stuff will satisfy, then guess where you won't be going for satisfaction? You won't be going to God because you don't have two masters. Line number one, that our stuff will satisfy. Line number two comes from woe number two. And that it's our self-made security will satisfy. Your self-made security will satisfy you. Now, there is a security that's good that will satisfy. comes from God. But there's a self-made security that many of us try to build up. That's what the Babylonians were doing. Let me read you these verses in woe number two, starting in verse nine. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain. Building the kingdom. What would cause them to do this by unjust gain? Because they think that their self-made security will satisfy. Then we get a picture of self-made security to set his nest on high. The picture there is Habakkuk saying, when I look at the Babylonians, the way I see their kingdom, it's like like an eagle's nest that's so high, no one could ever touch it. And he goes on and he describes it even more. To escape the clutches of ruin, no one can touch you. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples. Shaming your own household and forfeiting your life. That word forfeiting is interesting there. It means not just to die, but you're wasting your life trying to build up this security. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. The very things that you've used to create your security will testify against you. Think about building up security and safety. And many of us spend our lives essentially trying to insulate ourselves from ever having to do something that resembles faith. And what we're really trying to do when we build up security and safety, and we're constantly doing it. I mean, we live in North Raleigh, right? Is there a safer place than North Raleigh? I got kids wearing helmets to walk from the movie theater to their car. Maybe not that bad, but we're continually trying to build up safety nets, continually trying to build hedges of protection, whether it's through people, bank accounts, whatever, all kinds of stuff. So that nothing can touch us. Do you know what's really happening when we try to make self-made security? The real issue that's happening is that many of us want to control our circumstances. If we can control our circumstances to make everything okay, God, if you would just put these things in place, if if it was just at that situation, if I could just fill in the blank, they're different for each one of us. But if we can just control our circumstances so that everything's okay, then we'd be free to live a life of faith. No, we're never going to be free to live a life of faith. There's never a time when everything's okay because we're in this broken world. And so what we constantly do is we try to live a life of security, and it's a false security. So you build up great, huge walls around your house so no one can touch you, and then somebody gets cancer inside the walls. It's taken from you. The nest that seems so untouchable, the eagle's nest, it's touchable. And so it's a false security. There's real security. It comes from God. He'll never leave you or forsake you. In Romans chapter 8, he promises. You know what he promises? Even when the circumstances go as south as you can imagine them going, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not death, not demons, not sickness, not anything that you would list of the dark days. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Because this, 1 John chapter 5, he who has the Son has life. And no one can take the sun from you. But do you find your security there, or is it a self-made security? Because if you're seeking for a self-made security, like the Babylonians, you'll never be finding your security in Christ and the fact that you have Christ. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, what you see is most people that are called to walk by faith are called out of what we perceive to be security. Hebrews, I told you it's the book of faith, by faith, 29 times. Hebrews chapter 11 is the chapter that kind of highlights, here's all these people that did this stuff. 
My favorite example of someone who walks out of what perceives, what seems to be security is Moses. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, so he's no longer a little boy, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the prince of Egypt. Refused to be known as the son of the most powerful man in the world, the king of Egypt. Instead, he chose to be mistreated. So he leaves the palace and he leaves all the benefits of that to go be with the people that were enslaved by the Egyptians. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Who would do that? He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Moses knew who Christ was as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, the most powerful man in the world. He persevered because he saw him who's invisible. And so it's like these people who live by faith aren't living for this place. It was like he realized, I'm not a citizen of this place, so why am I going to build up a bunch of security in this place? Instead, he's looking to another place where there's a different reward. As long as we're living for self-made security here, we can't live by faith. It puts us in conflict. That's the second lie. Third lie that we see here is that your glory will satisfy you. Many people live for their own glory. The Babylonians certainly did this. He says this to them in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city, kingdom, with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? They're working in vain. They're wasting their lives. It's being said again. That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. And verse 14 is key. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge, not just mental ascent, but experiential knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The manifest presence is what glory oftentimes means in the Old Testament. That God's presence is felt, experienced, that you sense it in that place. The manifest presence of the Lord. As much as the waters cover the sea. And so you've ever been to a spot where you've seen the water, where there's just water as far as you can see. That God's glory is going to fill the earth. But the Babylonians are living for their own glory because they believe their glory will satisfy. So they build up their kingdom, which many people do. You try to build up your kingdom in your family, build up your kingdom in your small group, build up your kingdom at workplace, build up your kingdom in your church, build up your kingdom in all these different places to get all your people that are your people, think you're awesome, because they can tell you how awesome you are. And here's the deal. We are glory mongers. We're constantly trying to get glory. If you want me to prove that, I've got one word that will prove it. Selfie. We invented the selfie as a generation. Like, we invented the selfie. Could there be, I'd be like, could we say, and I don't know if you've done one, I've probably done a selfie. Here's the deal. We might as well wear signs that say, pay attention to me. Look at me. Tell me I'm great. We're glory mongers. We're glory whores. We constantly want someone to be telling us how great we are. I was thinking about it the other night. I took my dog out. Dogs runs around the house and they go outside and they do what they're supposed to do so they can get a treat. And many of us, we live like dogs. We're just, I did something good. Tell me how good I am. Pat me on the back. Tell me on Facebook. Tell me after I've done it. Do something. Like some, we're constantly living for our own glory. Do you realize how fleeting glory is? Does anyone here care about the Babylonians? I don't. What about the Romans? Because there'd be another kingdom that would come after that. How's Rome doing this week, by the way? For those of you who watch the news. Anybody care about that? No. So one kingdom will come, then another kingdom will come, then another kingdom will come. Let's put it in our world where we think oftentimes. Do you ever watch a reality TV show and they bring on some celebrity and you go, oh yeah, I remember them. Back when they were famous. 
and they're not anymore, and it's sad. Now we're watching the show. It's like all the used-to-be-famous people are on the show. There was a time when they were like the thing, and you forgot about them. And so it will be with you. What are your great-great-grandparents' names? Do you even know? I'm trying to leave a legacy for you. It's all fleeting. It all goes away. And no one cares. But one day, God's glory will fill the entire earth. And so what if, and how freeing would it be, if we would actually be free to live for his glory? That anything good that we possibly would do would ultimately reflect positively upon him. That if we don't get credit for some idea, uh, some thing we did, we didn't get a treat for our good behavior, who cares? That's all about him anyways. If we live like the glory is what's going to satisfy us, then we're continually striving for that and we're missing out on the one who will truly satisfy us. Our faith is at conflict and it's not possible to live by faith when you're living for your own glory. Line number four, other people will satisfy us. And what we see here, this is pretty graphic uh, imagery that's given here and what's happening. I'll explain it even before I read it. Um, They're using people for their own ends. Um, Probably what's happening is the Babylonians are most likely taking allies from other countries, getting them to help them win wars, and then they cut the allies out. And so they want to take over the whole world. They're not necessarily looking for partners, and they're going to kill those guys too. And here's the imagery that's given. Babylonians were known as drunks, and it says here, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so they can gaze on their naked bodies. Expose them. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. We're going to expose you. You reap what you sow. The cup from the Lord's right hand, which is a picture of judgment, coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The picture is of a drunk who's laying in his own vomit. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, and have destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them. And what's happening here is the Babylonians are using other people. And we might not use people like the Babylonians to ally us in war and then undercut them, but a lot of people think that people will bring pleasure. Some people think that if I just have the right person in my life, that they'll bring pleasure, like if I just found the right spouse. Or maybe you're in a difficult marriage and you think, well, maybe that's the problem. I got the wrong person. And so if I just had a different person, then that person would satisfy me. Or some people are, uh, you can call them people pleasers. If I could just get this person to affirm me, if I, people fearers, maybe if I could get dad's acknowledgement of me, if I could just um, codependent in a relationship, uh, you can call it whatever you want. But here's the gist of it. You put people in the place of God and those people will never deliver to you what you hope that they will deliver to you because they're not God. And if that's your deal, I just want to recommend a book to you. The book is by a guy named Edward Welch, and it's called When People Are Big and God is Small. Preached a whole message on people-pleasing back when we were in the series in Acts, and you can go to that. It's people-pleaser, beware. You can find it on our website. But here's the summary. If you live thinking that other people are going to bring you satisfaction, you will not live believing that God will bring you satisfaction. Let me share a verse with you from Isaiah. Isaiah says this, in verse 50, chapter 58, verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs when things are really bad in a sun-scorched land. And he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. God wants to bring you satisfaction, but as long as you're going to other people for that satisfaction, you'll never experience it from him. You're in conflict. So line number four is that people will satisfy. They won't. Line number five really summarizes all the other ones is that your idol will satisfy. 
idol is a false god. In the scriptures, a lot of times we think of them as little statues, wood carvings, uh, gold things that are plated together, lifeless images that people create, and that's how times they're oftentimes talked about. Romans chapter 1 tells us that anytime we worship creation, anytime we make something else, um, the created thing, what we worship. And here's what it says at the end of Habakkuk chapter 2. What value is an idol? Since a man has carved it. Now, many of us, we've already talked about our idols. We talked about money. We talked about other people. We talked about security. Oftentimes, those are our idols. But there are other ones, too. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? Again, tied back to verse 5, the deception. For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver and has no breath in it. In other words, it has no value to you. It, can really, it can't help you in a time of need. The image here is like what happens in 1 Kings chapter 18 when God's man Elijah challenges some false prophets, the prophets of Baal, an idol, to a duel. It says, we'll call out on our gods. You call out on your God. I'll call out on my God. And we'll see who's got answers. And so the prophets of Baal, they've spent hours you know, cutting themselves and calling out to their false god, and he doesn't answer. And then Elijah starts talking trash, which I love. Anytime a godly guy in the Bible talks trash, I love it. I talked a lot of trash when I played sports. My mouth was a lot better than my body, and so I, I love that. And Elijah says to the, the false prophets, he says, why don't you just call it a little bit louder? Maybe he's sleeping. Elijah knows he's not real. Now, many of us, we think something's going to deliver. Our job's going to deliver something for us. Our spouse is going to deliver something for us. Whatever our faults got, our security's going to deliver something. Our money's going to deliver something. Whatever those idols are in our lives, we think because they've lied to us. The sin tells us lies. And we put something on them, they can never deliver, so we'll crush them if we actually expect it to happen. It won't happen. And so Elijah knows that with this false prophet, and he's mocking them. He's pointing out to them their ignorance. And he says to them at one point, he says, maybe he's deep in thought, which sounds really great in English. In Hebrew, what he actually is saying to them is, maybe he's on the can. Maybe your God is relieving himself. And you just need to get his attention. He's pointing out he's not real. And then he calls upon Yahweh, and Yahweh shows up. Because that's what he does. That's what he does here. That's what he's saying to Habakkuk. Is I will bring justice on the Babylonians. In fact, I'll bring justice on all the proud. And I will bring judgment. And they will reap what they sow. And that's what's being said through these five woes that are happening here. But then it concludes with this, verse 20. But the Lord, he's in his holy temple. It's heaven. Let all the earth be silent before him. And remember Habakkuk had said back in chapter 2 in verse 1, I'll wait, and I'll wait even to be rebuked. Essentially what God's saying to Habakkuk is this, I've heard your complaint, I've heard your doubt, I've heard you say these things, now shut up, Habakkuk. Don't try to tell me how to be God. I've got this. What you need to decide, Habakkuk, is this, are you going to be like one of the righteous and live by faith? Or are you going to believe the lies the proud people believe and fight against faith? And so as we conclude today, what we're going to do is we're just going to have a couple moments of silence. And we're just going to be still. Acknowledge that he's God. For some of you, you might need to repent. For some of you, you may need to accept Christ. This would be a great moment. For some of you, you might need to ask God, search my heart. Show me if there's any offensive way in me. Show me if I believe some of these lies. And, and if you don't want to believe some of these lies, and in this moment you don't believe these lies, but when I go out and I live my life, do I start doing these things? Am I going to live like the proud person? Or am I going to live like the person who lives by faith? And so we'll just be quiet.